Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus, uh, that our chains are gone, that we have been set free. And what we have been set free to uh, is to live for you. And we pray that as we come to the scriptures this morning, that you would shape and inform us as to what that freedom looks like. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please go ahead and take your seat. This is a chance for uh, the kids to go out to City Kids, uh, to their program. Uh, let me add my welcome to Chris's as they go out. The rest of us can turn to Philippians. Uh, as I look out, welcome to Chrissy. Welcome back to Lorraine. Is there a doctor in the house? Yes, there's two. Um, so we're all set. Uh, it's great to have you here. This is our final week in our series looking at the atonement, uh, looking at different aspects, different facets of the cross. And today we look at uh, the final one, how Jesus in his death gives us an example. Jesus is our example. And so I'm going to read uh, Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 to 11. This is Paul writing. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Every day, I don't know if you're the same, every day I get an email Pretty much the same email every day. It's, uh, it's some desperate widow in Africa who just happens to have $6 million. And in her plight, she would like to share that $6 million with me. Do you get that email? And I, and I read it and I think, gosh, I am a lucky guy. And the only thing that I need to do is I need to just, I need to send her, I don't quite understand, maybe it's an African thing, I need to send her some money to release the six million. And so I sit there every day and I think, will today be the day that I do it? Will today be the day that I reply to that email? I say, here's my sort code, 9502, and here's my account number, 
117. Uh, Will today be the day? Of course I don't do that. Why don't I hit reply? Why don't I hit reply and give her my bank details so that I could be a multimillionaire? I'd be like, see you later. No, I wouldn't. I would stay, honestly. <laughs> why? Because I know it's a fraud, right? You know it's a fraud. That's why you don't do it. If we were assured that this, uh, that this African widow had six million quid, we'd all be hit and reply. Or one of us could do it. We'd just split it. Like, we'd all do pretty well. Why do, why do Dubliners hesitate when somebody stops them in the street and asks them for money? There are many people in need. There are many people who have very little in our city. There are many people who live well below the breadline. Why do we hesitate? It's in part because there are so many illegitimate claims. You hear stories of people abusing that system, preying on the generosity of people, people, frankly, being frauds, being fake. People also look at us. They look at the church. They look at Christians. They look at City Church, and they ask, are they frauds? Are they, are they faking it? Are they the real deal? Are they legit? And sadly, in the history of the church, especially the history of the church in Ireland, that hasn't been without reason. It's not an, it's not an unreasonable question for people to ask because people have had what Paul would say, a kind of form of godliness. But actually, it's revealed that they too have been frauds. People have a heightened sense of awareness a heightened sense of awareness about being sold something that's just really a cheap knockoff that you would get on holiday rather than being offered the real thing. So what does cheap knockoff Christianity look like? What does fraudulent Christianity look like? Well, there's a number of markers, I guess. Uh, one, one might be disunity disunity, bickering and infighting, that's a marker of cheap knockoff Christianity. Or a kind of hollow unity. This is kind of, uh, this is kind of popular in various denominations, perhaps the one that, uh, that I, we am associated with within the Church of Ireland, that it's kind of unity for unity's sake. That's the kind of, let's all just be united. And the question comes, well, Around what? So we all, we, we don't agree. There's serious issues here. And they're like, yeah, 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 let's just not talk about that. Let's just be united. Let's just be nice to one another. Like, That's a hollow unity. That's cheap knockoff Christianity. Disunity, hollow unity. What else? Cheap knockoff Christianity is a Christianity where the people who profess to be Christians are still overly concerned with self, with status, with position, with playing politics within the family of the church, with their own reputation, with their own standing. That's cheap knockoff Christianity. Cheap knockoff Christianity is also where humility 
is just an adjective and not a verb. Humility is an adjective, right? Just looking at my, my grammar pedant wife. It's not a noun. Good. Uh, where it has a, a verbal expression. It actually manifests in something happening. You know, the, person, the person who goes around and says, I'm feeling very humble today. <laughs> really? Why don't you demonstrate your humility by shutting up for a second? Humility is not just an adjective, but a verb. Paul, in this section of Philippians, is encouraging the believers to avoid cheap knockoff Christianity and is encouraging them towards authentic unity. How does he describe it? He starts off with this weird little section in verse 1. Uh, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, basically it's a bunch of rhetorical questions that you're supposed to answer yes. Is it because there is uh, encouragement from Christ, because there is comfort from His love, because there is participation in His Spirit? Therefore, complete my joy. How? How do we complete Paul's joy? By being united, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Why? Why does Paul want the Christians in Philippi, and by extension, us here in Dublin this morning, why does he want them to be united? Why does he want them to express an authentic form of Christianity? Well, if we were to read on to chapter 2, verse 15, if you've got your Bible open, you can have a look at it. Uh, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Our unity, our same mind, same loveness, speaks to our witness as a church and as individuals that a united community shines like a star, that we shine like stars in a dark world, in a world that is full of disunity and strife and backbiting and clambering for position and grasping and competing and rivalry. What will be the contrast to that? Humble unity. That is how this unity is achieved. It is achieved. So he wants them, verse 2, to be a full accord of one mind. How? How is that going to be achieved? Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you see? Unity comes about, is precipitated by is created by true gospel humility. Not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Not doing anything out of rivalry or of conceit. Conceit is vain glory, desiring your own glory rather than the glory of another. That's what conceit is. 
And so Paul, because he wants the Christians to be united and not a cheap knockoff form of Christianity, because he wants them to be united, and he knows that in order for that to happen, he needs them to be humbled, he gives them the highest example of humility, the greatest example of humility, and it is in the person and work of Jesus. It's in Christ. Who He is shows His humility. What He has done shows His humility. So let's look first at who He is. Again, all we're doing is just working through the passage, just verse by verse, trying to understand it. How does Jesus' being show His humility? Well, verse 6, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a a thing to be grasped. So, form. What does that mean? It it does not mean Jesus looked like God but wasn't. You know, he was in the form of God. He was in the form of something. It might be a kind of a metaphor. That's not what Paul means. Rather, it means that whatever was essential to being God, whatever essential godness there was, that exists in Jesus. That Jesus is actually, authentically, perfectly God, and yet did not count equality with God something to be grasped. What does it mean to grasp at something? It's not that he didn't possess it. It's that he didn't exploit it. He didn't stand on his own rights He didn't use his godness to his own advantage. Rather, he set it aside. You see, the opposite to humility is pride, and pride is grasping. Pride is competing, using it for your own advantage. It is by nature competitive. Listen to C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than you. It is the comparison that makes you pride. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. You see, Christ's humility comes from the fact that He's not lesser. He's not less than God. It's that He doesn't grasp at His equality with God. He has no need to compete. He is so assured of who He is, of His being, that He has no no need to lord it over. We see that example in His life, in that uh, instance that actually we would remember uh, this coming week, this coming Thursday, where we uh, remember Jesus in the upper room and what is one of the things that he does in the upper room with his disciples before they have dinner, a very famous little piece, is he gets up and he washes their feet. And so you see archbishops and, and people prancing around at the front of cathedrals washing people's feet. But what was Jesus' motivation? Why did he do it? Listen to the words of John 13, verse 3. Jesus, this is crucial, knowing 
that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it round his waist, then he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. What's Jesus' motivation for this act of humility? It's not that he's lesser. It's that he's assured of who he is. He knows he has come from God. He knows that he is the beloved of the Father. So he doesn't need to grapple for position. He doesn't need to grasp and clamber for more. Do you see? Because he has this position, he is able to act in humility. This is how who Jesus is shows his humility. Now, what about what he has done? How does what he does show his humility? We're back in Philippians, verse 7. That though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see this downward spiral that Paul is painting? Again, we have this, uh, this form language found in human form. Again, not that he just looked like a man but wasn't, that he was essentially human. And yet he emptied himself. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Did Jesus become less than God? Some people believe that. Some people believe that when Jesus was incarnate, he, he, he divested himself, he emptied himself of, of something that was essential to his godness. That is incorrect. No, Jesus remains the creator. He remains the sustainer of all things. He, during his earthly life, is still upholding the universe by the word of his power, as Paul would say. That is the mind-blowing thought of the crucifixion, that, that as, he, uh, as he relinquishes his hand to be nailed to the wood, he is still allowing the heart of the centurion to beat. He is still holding the atoms of that centurion together by the word of his power. He has lost none of it. So what does it mean that he emptied himself? Rather, it means that he set aside all the rights and privileges of, of divinity. He set it all aside. The king of the universe, the uncreated creator, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the bright morning star, the one of whom the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. He laid aside that majesty and became an ordinary, poor Jewish baby bound for the cross. He laid aside all rights and pretensions. He emptied himself. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. You see, the extent of Christ's humility 
is made the most stark when we appreciate who he was, that he was this darling of heaven. And yet he willingly set it aside. And note that Christ's humility is not just an adjective, but a verb, verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He did something that demonstrated his humility. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, and Paul emphasizes it, and he drives it home by saying, even death on a cross. We are at the lowest point of this grand sweep. We start off with, with Jesus in eternity, the majestic one, laying it all aside, being born in the likeness of man, becoming a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, we wear it as jewelry. We, we desensitize, we sanitize the cross. But for Paul and for any Roman reader, it was the ultimate indignity. The physical agony of the crucifixion was magnified by the extent of the degradation of the crucifixion, the utter shameful humiliation of it such that it was impolite to talk of crucifixion because of its humiliation. And yet Paul drives it home, even death on a cross. You see, the cross is the ultimate contrast to the divine majesty that Christ enjoyed. And so you cannot get a more profound expression of humble obedience, humble obedience to the will of his Father. As we noted a few weeks ago, he stands in the garden and he says, not my will, but yours be done. But Paul does not end there, and we don't end with the darkness of Good Friday, but with the light of Easter day. So verse 9 begins, therefore, therefore God, therefore it's a, it's a it's a try it's a cliche but when you're reading the bible and you're when you see it therefore you ask what's it there for <laughs> the people haven't heard this one before <laughs> good to know you're still awake yes what's it there for therefore it's causal christ submits himself is obedient to death even death on a cross as a result of that God exalts him. Because of Christ's obedience, he is exalted. He is honored for his obedience by his Father, and he has given a name, a name that is above every name. And it's not totally clear what is being spoken about here, but I think there's hints of it in verse 11, that Jesus Christ is Lord. What is the name that Christ has given, that Jesus has given. It is the name Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. It's Old Testament Lord. That's the name. It's the personal name of God. The name in Hebrew is Yahweh. 
And it comes to us in our English translations as this capitalized Lord. It speaks of of his authority, but it also speaks of his relational character, how he draws close. It is his promise-giving name. That is the name that is given to Jesus. Now, I have a confession. I messed up the reading. Thank you, Keegan, for reading a huge passage. What I wanted you to read, and what I should have communicated, was you to read Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. (laughs) As opposed to the whole thing. That's my bad. I apologize. But... So you're probably sitting there going, why is he really like this? Like, who on earth is Ephraim? What's going on with that? Rachel's weeping for her children. This is really weird. Mark's lost it. Mark just had a bad admin day. That's what happened. But, but, as I was reading it, what this chapter is about, it's about the actions of Yahweh, of capital L-O-R-D, Lord. What is it that he does? I'll not read the whole thing, but I will draw your attention to, again, to a couple of things that this Lord does. Listen to verse 11 of Jeremiah 31, for the Lord. Now, when I say this, think Jesus Christ. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. What a great illustration of salvation, that we have been redeemed from hands too strong for us. That that tight grip of Satan, sin, and death has been pried away by the cross of Jesus. Verse 13. Then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. That's what the Lord does. He gives comfort for sorrow. He gives joy. He gives dancing. Some of you like to dance. Some of you hate to dance. I'm married to somebody who hates to dance. But some people love to dance. Verse 33, what we should have read. I, again, this is the Lord speaking, will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. That's what the Lord does. Verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's what the Lord does. That is the name that Jesus has given. So when you go back and you read your Old Testament, you read of the actions of the Lord, that's Jesus. I'm reminded as I speak of uh, that Christmas carol, uh, uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem, not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by, but he is now in heaven, ruling and reigning. And Paul gives us a glimpse as to where history is going when he says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee, it's worth just pointing out, not the people who, you know, happen to believe, 
Not the people who give intellectual assent now, but every knee. Some will bow and, cry, and submit to Christ's lordship, and it will be a terrifying lordship, whereas for others, they will speak of joy and of peace. But every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So, I need to pick up pace. So how does this example of Christ, see, if the reading hadn't been so long, then I wouldn't have done a whole other thing. Anyway, uh, how does Christ's example of humility help us? Because we're reading about, you know, the, the darling of heaven setting aside all of his rights and becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross, and you kind of think, well, <laughs> great, bully for him, but this is little old me, and I'm a bit more flawed than him, I think. We can think that it's a little bit like Tiger Woods showing you a perfect round and then handing you the clubs and saying, your turn. No, it's not like that. Yes, the cross of Jesus gives us an example of how to live a humble life. But if that's all it is, then it's cruel and unattainable. How can we possibly strive to model ourselves after that example of humility under our own strength. But you see, the reality is that Christ's obedient death is not just an example, it also enables our obedience. Back to verse 5. Verse 5 is absolutely crucial. I really think that everybody should get it tattooed. Like, I think we'll go after church to color works because it's so fundamental for understanding Christian obedience. Philippians 2, verse 5, and the ESV gets it right. The NIV butchers it. If you've got an NIV, get the ESV for this verse. Uh, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which is yours in Christ, Je in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus' last day really does change our everyday because it enables us to think and to act differently towards everything and everyone. How? Because we are in Christ Jesus. Paul, 77, 78 times in the New Testament, uses this language of being in Christo, of in Christ, or derivations thereof. What does it mean? It means that we are united to Jesus, that we are joined to him by faith so that we share in all that he enjoys. Jesus is not some distant character that we aspire to. He comes to us and he dwells within us. He joins us by his Spirit to himself. This is a glorious mystery. We are called sons of God because he is the Son, and we are in him. God the Father looks at us, looks at you and I, and declares us innocent because we are in His perfect Son. We think differently because we are joined to Jesus. And He has a radically different mind to ours. Does this mean that we suddenly enjoy perfection? Do we suddenly enjoy uh, sinlessness? No, of course not. But it does mean that through our life, our thoughts and actions become increasingly into conformity with His, increasingly into line. 
So when Paul says in verse 2 that we are to have the same mind, what does he mean? Does he mean that we're all to intellectually assent to the same things? That we're all supposed to be little robots, just kind of uniform? No. We can even disagree. He says we're to have the same mind. We're each to share in the mind of Christ, in the mind of Jesus, the one who did nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Jesus, who always, in humility, counted others more significant than himself. That's what drove him to the cross. That's what caused him to lay aside his majesty. He considered you more than himself. That's the mind that we are to share in. That's what true gospel humility is. Gospel humility is not self-hatred. It's not self-love. It's self-forgetting. Let me say that again. True humility is not self-hatred. It's not self-love. It's self-forgetting. The person who persistently tells us that they're a nobody, they're still self-obsessed. They're just self-obsessed in a negative way. Listen to Tim Keller, pastor of Presbyterian Church in New York. He says this, he says, the thing that we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself it is thinking of myself less when we stop connecting every experience and every conversation to ourselves you know those me monsters you tell a story and they go oh that's nothing where do you hear what i did you think oh okay so back to being about you again We begin to forget ourselves. Our self-forgetfulness, it comes from the same place as Christ's. That just as, as he was assured of his identity, so he assures us of ours. You see, faith in Jesus gives us an unshakable new character, an unshakable new identity that we no longer need to grapple for position. We no longer need to grasp at power, at status, because we've been united to Christ. What higher ideal, what higher goal is there that we could possibly achieve if we have faith in Jesus? And this is the difference between somebody who is puffed up and somebody who is filled up. You know, people puff and puff up their ego. It's full of air. People inflate their view of themselves like a balloon. They fill it with the air of of business success or career position or a degree classification or a bank balance or social superiority or success of the opposite sex or the same sex. And all that is required to deflate that way of thinking is for someone to come along who does it better than them. And it's like a pin. And all of that air that puffed them up comes flying out. Now, the answer to that and the reality of faith in Jesus is not that we are puffed up, not that Christians are arrogant, not that we're puffed up, but that we're filled up. 
that we're filled up with Christ, having Him as our ultimate value and pursuing Him as our highest ideal. No one can take away that identity. No one can deflate that because there is nothing more. There is nothing higher. This is not high self-esteem or low self-esteem, but gospel humility. And this really does impact every area of our lives. And I finish with verse 4. Let each of you not look... Sorry, try again. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this word interests here, it's not there in the original. Satyrus can verify. You'll get his, uh, his Greek Bible out. It's not there. It's a filler word. What it really reads is, let each of you look not only to his own, but to others. It's a kind of fill in the blank. It really is an every area of your life sort of thing. It really is a impacting your every day. It's not only his own comfort, not only his own rights, not only his own finances, not only his own well-being, not only his own hunger, but that of others. How would you fill that in? If you could put one word in there, what would it be? Let each of you look not only to his own, what is it, but to others. And it's not to say that we're to live a life of, we're to live a life of, of poverty and we're to go around beating ourselves like some sort of Monty Python sketch, you know, hitting ourselves in the head with a, um, a, with a plank. It's not only our own interests. This is gospel humility. And it isn't something that we can fake. Christians are called to be what we might call a counterculture. There's a culture in the world, there's a culture in our city that has certain values. And we're called to be a counterculture, to be different to that culture. What more obvious way than not standing on our own rights, than not being quite so entitled. Lots of entitlement in our culture. Not being quite so obsessed with our own comfort, success, power, status. but looking to serve others so that we might shine like stars in a dark world, in a world where people constantly grapple and grasp what more profound, compelling, and beautiful counterculture is there than the one that arises from this passage from having the mind of Christ, from having the humility that it causes, and showing the, hu the unity that it produces.